Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. It is a Monday, the 29th of April, 2019. My name is Raheem Kassam. I'm the uh, Global Editor-in-Chief of HumanEvents.com. Some of you will remember Human Events uh, from being Ronald Reagan's, President Reagan's favorite magazine. Well, we're bringing that website back to life this week after a long time on the sidelines. We'll be talking to you a little bit about that more later on in the show. Um, but I wanted to start off by talking about uh, something that I found particularly egregious um, over the past couple of days, and it's reared its ugly head once again. And, and I feel like a lot of people aren't paying enough attention to this. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the Democrat Party in the United States at the moment, alongside the left-leaning media, I think is becoming increasingly and overtly anti-Semitic. The level of Jew hatred out there on the political left, ladies and gentlemen, is not just becoming commonplace now, but actually uh, rather routine and expected of left-wing politicians and left-wing news outlets. There was a, a cartoon, you'll remember, in the, uh, in the New York Times, in the international version of the New York Times this weekend. At least I hope you remember Everybody should have seen this. Everybody should have been paying attention to this this weekend. It was an absolutely ghastly cartoon that depicted a blind President Trump with a yarmulke on, a kippah, um, being led with a, with, a, with a taut leash by his German dashund seeing eye dog that resembled Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, and in the cartoon, Benjamin Netanyahu had a, a Star of David on his dog collar. Now, if you're trying to make an assertion that the Israeli prime minister is leading the US president, you could do it without all that Jewish symbolism. You could do it without the German dog. You could do it without the kippah on Donald Trump's head. But no, they chose, the New York Times chose intentionally to lead with, with Jewish symbolism that would be, would be probably well-placed in, in the Nazi-era newspaper De Sturmer, right? That's, that's where that sort of uh, uh, offensive symbology historically uh, can be seen. And you see it often as well still, and I think a lot of people have to pay very close attention to this as well. You see it on the sort of neo-Nazi side of the of the uh, political debate in both the United States and indeed in Europe, and you'll notice I don't say the extreme right or the far right because I don't believe that neo Nazis have anything to do with the political right. I don't. I think perhaps they seek to to latch on to us onto onto people like me who are right wing, but but they have nothing to do with us. Almost nothing in common. They tend to be very socialistic in their economic policies, very totalitarian and very unlibertarian. Um, in their in their social policies, it disturbs me deeply because not only did the New York Times lead with this uh, this cartoon this weekend, they've done it again today. There is another cartoon in the New York Times International today, depicting a a selfie stick wielding Benjamin Netanyahu with a with a tablet in his hand, as if he's he's coming down from Mount Sinai, uh, with a star of David on it again. And these things are often not contextualized. The one that you saw this weekend actually showed something 
that was not related to the article that was underneath the cartoon. It was just an offensive cartoon for the sake of having an offensive cartoon. It was just Jew hatred for the sake of Jew hatred. And why am I talking about this? Why does a cartoon in the New York Times matter? On a, on a, on a Monday evening when so much else is going on in the news cycle, because I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, the accusations of bigotry and racism and xenophobia and all those sorts of things have been levied at the political right for so long. And I have said for so long, and those of you who have listened to me before on this show and who have seen my writing before and who have listened to Buck on this show before, you know, you will know that we don't just outright reject those things. We have said time and time again, the left is projecting it's projecting its own disturbing identity politics. It's projecting its own disturbing hatred for significant groups um, in the United States and indeed all across Europe and the wider world as well. They project what they think onto us and shout, bigot, bigot, bigot. They are the bigots, ladies and gentlemen. They proved it not just once this weekend when the New York Times didn't apologize. They said they, said they what, what was it, a regret? We expressed regret. There was no sorry. They said it found its way in somehow. It didn't meet our editorial standards. Don't know how it happened. Won't happen again. Happened again today. Happened again two days later. What I'm saying to you is this level of political discourse is now institutionalized on the political left. And you'll probably notice I don't speak with an American accent. I'm from the United Kingdom. And in the United Kingdom, the leader of the opposition party is a chap called Jeremy Corbyn. Now, Jeremy Corbyn is an old-school Marxist. I mean, he is of the hard left. He makes Bernie Sanders look like Ron Paul. He makes Bernie Sanders look like a right-wing libertarian. Jeremy Corbyn has been known to march alongside Hezbollah supporters in Trafalgar Square and in Parliament Square on the annual Al-Quds Day march. Jeremy Corbyn invited to tea in the House of Commons members of the Irish Republican Army, the terrorist faction, the IRA, just a few weeks after they tried to bomb the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, and half of the cabinet at the Conservative Party conference back in the 80s. Jeremy Corbyn uh, has had lunch with leaders of Hamas. Jeremy Corbyn has spun for Iranian state television, press TV, And that level of Marxism that has at its core, at its core, anti-Semitism as a part and parcel of it has now found its way over to the United States. And I've been warning about this for years. We've seen it happen to our politics in the United Kingdom. The left pulling further and further to the left. And they get away with it because media outlets not only do not hold them to account but they give them sucker and support. You remember when Ilan Omar, this new congresswoman, was accused of anti-Semitism, rightfully so, just a couple of weeks ago. Almost all of the Democrat establishment and everyone in the mainstream media rode to her aid. They said, no, she's not anti-Semitic. You're just saying that because she's a Muslim or she's a Somali woman or she's an immigrant or she's brown. You know, they hurled every single thing they could possibly hurl in her defense at the people. And they weren't just right wingers, by the way. 
There were still some people on her side saying how unacceptable this was. There were still some people in the middle saying how unacceptable this was. But they hurled at all of us who were objecting to her behavior, to Linda Sarsour's behavior, to Louis Farrakhan's behavior, to the, to the new political left in the United States' behavior. They hurled all these things in their defense. And I have to tell you, I think that creates an incredibly disturbing line of demarcation now. And it's something that we have to pay very close attention to because it has real-world implications. If the political right is supposed to own Richard Spencer, if the political right is supposed to own Jason Kessler, who is an Obama supporter, by the way, who put together that Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, if we have that cross to bear then the left should at least be expected to take action against extremism, political extremism, within their own ranks. And at this point in time, ladies and gentlemen, they don't. They aren't expected to do that. And that is something that I think, as we are led into the 2020 election cycle, will become even more prevalent. Remember the Democrat National Convention, the last time over, on the first day of the Democrat National Convention, and by the way, the, the, the media matters of the world will say, no, no, this is fake news, what Rahim is about to say. It's not fake news. Go and look at it yourself. On the first day of the convention, there were more Palestinian flags in that convention hall for the DNC than there were American flags. Identity politics has gone way to the extreme. The, the, the placation of... of the Jew hatred that stems from many Middle Eastern countries and many North African countries that finds its roots in radical or orthodox Islam is now a mainstay of the Democratic Party of America. And again, it has real-world implications. The people who are shooting up synagogues out there, the people who are burning churches out there, the people who are assailing simply because they disagree with somebody's religious perspective, they are encouraged by hearing these things from your representatives and they are encouraged by seeing them in your press. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my, I suppose, opening statement for the day. We have a great show for you, packed full of uh, great guests. Uh, we're going to go really around the, around the world today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in my home country, the United Kingdom. As I'm sure some of you are aware, we voted to leave a little thing called the European Union a couple of years ago, and it still hasn't happened. We've got one of the candidates who is standing for an all-new party called the Brexit Party. Uh, his name is Martin Daubeny. He will be joining us on the show. Uh, we've got Jason Miller, the former uh, communications director for the Trump 2020 campaign, will be joining us. Jack Posobiec of One American News, Terry Schilling, the American Principles Project. And uh, my business partner, Will Chamberlain, who is a, 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 great, uh, a great lawyer and a great political commentator. Some of you may have seen his periscopes on that he does on Twitter. He'll be joining us as well, along with President uh, Ryan Williams of the Claremont Foundation also. So stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss this show, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Raheem Kassam. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. My name is Raheem Kassam, the global editor-in-chief of humanevents.com. I'm very pleased to be joined now 
by Jason Miller, the former senior communications advisor to the Trump campaign and the chief spokesman for the Trump's transition team. Jason, thanks for joining us. Raheem, thank you so much for having me on. I was going to say Buck sounds a little bit different today, but I'm kind of digging the new accent. <laughs> I, I can only imagine what Buck Sexton doing an impersonation of Raheem Ghassan would sound like. <laughs> uh, I'm sure very offensive to everyone. Um, Jason, I, I wanted to ask you, the, um, the Trump uh, 2020 campaign manager, Brad Pascal, was uh, on the televisions this weekend talking about the bigger and better uh, campaign that he foresees for next year. Obviously, um, a lot of people are thinking, wow, with this Democrat uh, uh, lineup of candidates, it's going to be a walk in the park for President Trump. But Brad doesn't seem to think so. Brad seems to think, you know, they've got to throw everything in the kitchen sink um, and even more at this. Uh, I wonder if you agree with that and, and also what you think of his strategy that he outlined, talking about other sort of states that haven't traditionally been in play um, coming into coming into being battleground states next year? So great question. Having been a part of President Trump's historic 2016 campaign, knowing Brad Parscale and the, the Trump team very well, I think what Brad's doing is is smart for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's being realistic that this is the country still very divided on the partisan basis. And even though President Trump has cut taxes and reduced regulations and fought for better trade deals, and we're seeing wage growth greater than inflation for the first time in a, in a heck of a long time, the fact of the matter is, is the media is going to attack President Trump every single day from now all the way up through 2020. So what Brad is doing is he's organizing and professionalizing uh, a top-shelf campaign that's ready to go for uh, to battle regardless of whoever the Democratic nominee is. There's another important thing that I think Brad's doing, which is recognizing that partisan and demographic shifts in certain states uh, are changing the outlook and the prospects for 2020. So where you take a look at, say, for example, uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin and even Michigan, I think, will even be in better position for President Trump as we go into and, – and actually, I'd say also – Ohio and Florida, I think all of those states will be in better position for President Trump than they were in 2016. You look at certain states such as Arizona, Texas, North Carolina, that I think will be a bit tougher going into 2020 just because of the, the way folks are moving around. And I think it's important that Brad lights that fire now and so nobody's asleep at the switch. Yeah, I mean, in your estimation, two questions that follow on from that in my mind. Uh, uh, number one, what do you make of the fundraising capabilities uh, now? Because, I, I, again, I think there is a level of complacency out there, um, given the given the field. I mean, what have we got? We've got we've got Pete Butterjoke or whatever his name is. We've got Joe Biden. We've got uh, uh, Kamala Harris. I mean, Beto has just disappeared, by the way. Anybody seen Beto recently? Or I think he had a rally of about 12 people the other day or something like that. So there may be a level of complacency out there, especially as regards fundraising, I think. And I'm, 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 I'm concerned a little bit about that. Um, and the other question, I guess, is um, wh what do you see the uh, campaign issues being? What do you see uh, Brad focusing on in terms of policy as we go into next year? Another good question here. So with regard to the complacency, I completely agree with you on this. Now, the good news is is that President Trump is still turning out huge crowds, and people still show up, and I think his base will be energized. But I think for so many Trump voters, uh, I think this is part of the reason why we got hit so bad in 2018, they feel really good about where things are. We're at historic lows for unemployment rates. We're 
we're seeing the fact that China is actually making moves to come uh, at us with a, a better trade deal. There's a, a whole long way to that actually getting done and being enforced and, and being uh, concrete and, and, and finalized here. But the fact of the matter is that Trump is winning on so many different fronts, two new Supreme Court justices, that I feel a lot of our voters, well, just to be honest with you, I think have gotten really lazy, and they think that everything's fine, and of course everyone around, around the country is going to recognize the great work that Trump's doing, and so I get I worry about that. I think you're completely right there, and that's part of the reason why I think it's smart that Parscale is lighting the fire in some of these traditional Republican states to get people thinking, to get them worried, to get them start actually motivated. So that's, that's, that's smart of him to do. On the Here is where um, when we talk about the 2020 field, and obviously there's news today with Joe Biden doing his, well, I guess they call it a rally, but it doesn't look like there, there are many people there mm. um, in Pittsburgh. I'm a bit of a contrarian when it comes to Trump allies. I actually think Joe Biden is literally the single best nominee that Donald Trump could go up against in the general election for the best chances of winning. Now, I know that might sound a little bit crazy, but hear me out for a moment. I think the traditional... Washington mindset is to look at things in kind of a linear ideological construct. Who's the moderate? Who's the conservative? Who's the liberal? Where people, uh, and also in the pure geographic terms, Joe Biden uh, was born in Pennsylvania and then spent most of his adult life in Delaware and Washington, D.C., so he might have advantages in, in different places. I don't look at that uh, at all. I think that what's more important here is Jason, 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 sorry yeah. to interrupt you. We're up against a break here, but can we, can we hold you for another quick segment, just another five or oh, ten absolutely. minutes, and we'll come back? Okay. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. We're going to be back with Jason Miller in just a moment. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Raheem Kassam, guest hosting for Buck Sexton. And usually when I'm in Buck's studio, I say I'm, I'm occupying the Freedom Hut, but I'm not in the Freedom Hut today. I'm down here in West Palm Beach, Florida, causing all sorts of nightmares for our uh, brilliant producers and engineers, um, now all across the East Coast, and I thank them for uh, their patience. Um, we are joined back again here by uh, uh, Jason Miller, the... Um, former spokesman for the Trump transition team and senior communications advisor for the Trump 2016 campaign. Jason, thanks for holding over. Um, before the break, you were uh, you were talking about the, the targeting that's going on um, by the Trump 2020 campaign. Um, you were also talking about why Joe Biden may well be the best candidate um, for Donald Trump to go up against. If you wouldn't mind just finishing that thought off for me and then maybe remarking a, a little bit upon what uh, Brad Pascal said um, this weekend when he said the campaign hopes to have 1.6 million uh, volunteers compared to the 700,000 across the country that they had in 2016. Jason. Excellent. Well, and thanks again for having me on, Raheem. The, the reason why Joe Biden will be the perfect opponent for Donald Trump is because Donald Trump will be able to point at Joe Biden and say, Joe, you have been part of the problem in Washington for 50 years. The exact number is 47, but 50 years. And it's because of career politicians like you why we're in this mess, why we've gotten to this problem with illegal immigration, why we've gotten to this problem on terrible trade deals, why we're at this point with ridiculous taxation and spending. If Trump is the change agent in the 2016 election, even though he's the incumbent, uh, and he's able to make Joe Biden essentially the the incumbent or the the status quo, the old way of doing things. 
Donald Trump is going to win the race in 2020. It gets a bit tougher when you have someone who's a, a blank slate, someone who doesn't have the big record. But you literally look at the rally that Joe Biden had just this afternoon in Pittsburgh. Mm. He has maybe 50 people behind him. When's the last time that Donald Trump had an event that didn't have 10,000 people with him. There's no energy, no enthusiasm for Biden. Many of the same problems that Hillary had in 2016, Biden will have in 2020. Trump allies who are thinking that Joe Biden's the toughest opponent for um, for Trump in the general election are looking at it through the wrong lens. That's the old way of thinking. This is about change versus the status quo. Raheem, the other point that you brought up about Parscale meeting on the, the volunteers, uh, look, Brad's obviously crunched numbers and, and looked at a lot of these things, but ultimately what this is going to come down to is President Trump and him continuing to get out there and push his work on the immigration issue. We have to do something about this crisis at the southern border. Uh, we've started on the wall construction, but we've got to get a lot more done between now and next year. And if President Trump is ultimately making good on these campaign promises and continuing to keep his base and also independent voters fired up and, and on his side, then he's going to be in great shape. And whether it's the 1.6 million volunteers this go around, uh, you know, whether it's 1.6 or 1.4 or 1.2, the most important thing is you have a lot of people who don't necessarily get out there and, and walk uh, neighborhoods or who make mm. volunteer phone calls. That's great to have, but let's not forget that Donald Trump won much of the 2016 race uh, with his Twitter account and by the fact that he would get up there with everyone in the debates. And I, I think that this still comes down to uh, the most important part of a Trump campaign is Donald Trump. We're talking to Jason Miller, the um, former uh, communications uh, advisor for the Trump 2016 uh, campaign and the spokesman for the uh, Trump transition team all those years ago now, Jason. Um, Jason, tell me, when you look at these pictures that are coming out of Pittsburgh today, this Joe Biden rally, I don't know if you have, but I certainly have. I've been looking on Twitter for actual pictures of the room because they're so tight. The cameras are so tight on on creepy joe there that it looks like he could be giving a speech to a major venue it could be in a stadium it, it sort of looks like a trump rally because they they're so tight it looks like he might have you know three thousand people behind him and fifteen thousand in front of him and ten thousand to each side but actually if you zoom out ladies and gentlemen if you go on twitter and look at these pictures and and indeed uh, jason and i will both tweet the pictures out so you can see them jason what's your twitter account at Jason Miller in D.C. There you go. And we'll, we'll show you what's going on here because the, they pull the cameras so tight. And this is one of the, the, the art forms that campaigns use to pretend that they've got bigger support than they have. There's probably about 150 people max in that room. And I would say probably about 50 of them are the media. Um, at, a, at a push, at a real push, if there's something I can't see off to the sidelines, there's only 200 people in that room. That room can only fit about 200 people in there. Um, but, but a ton of them, a quarter of that room is probably media. He's giving a speech like he's giving a massive campaign rally. When you see what happened to Beto um, this weekend, Jason, and you see what's happening to Biden here, not able to draw those crowds, what does it portend for 2020 for the Democrats? Well, this just goes to the point about Biden and the lack of enthusiasm and, and even Beto. And uh, look, maybe with Beto, people got creeped out by the hands and uh, they just think he's too goofy now that they've seen him once already. But uh, you look at Biden's kickoff. Did we lose here, Jason? Just, 
and they just actually uh, did a, a slight. Um, uh, if you see in there, they did do like one or two Taps. pan out shots uh, during the uh, uh, during the Biden rally, and you could see that there's only about maybe 30 or 40 people behind him. This just shows that there's no enthusiasm and no intensity for these Democratic candidates. I think that's absolutely right. Um, Jason Miller, just uh, a final thoughts uh, for us before we uh, before we let you go. And you're very kind for giving us uh, your time today. Um, t- tell me, just to pivot a little bit here, uh, I started the show by talking about the, the I think, what's devastatingly creepy uh, anti-Semitism that you're finding in the New York Times and the political left in general right now. Um, where do you think that's coming from? And what do you think it says um, about the way that the, uh, the, the, the political left in general is going? Well, I first would want to commend your efforts, uh, Raheem, to, to call out um, much of this anti-Semitic rhetoric that we've seen from the political left and from, unfortunately, now creeping into the news media. I mean, there was a I want to read a tweet from Andrew Gillum, who lost the race for governor in Florida. And this was from earlier today. Donald Trump Jr. had tweeted something, and he was uh, criticizing uh, uh, the media on something. And Andrew Gillum replied, Jr. seeking approval from daddy with hate and lies after a white nationalist shooting is very on brand. Be your own man, Jr. And I was so disgusted and repulsed by it that someone on the professional left would do this. I replied back to him and basically said it was disgusting that he played blame game politics with a horrific tragedy like the, the shooting that we just saw. But this is where the political left is. You look at Ilan Omar with her consistent uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric that I think it just goes is just absolutely disgusting. But the fact that we saw this New York Times cartoon Probably the most blatant anti-Semitic cartoon that I have seen in a publication in my professional life. I mean, this this just goes to show how uh, how out of touch with reality many in the media and the professional Democratic left uh, is right now. Uh, it, it just it's completely bonkers, and I hope that. Jewish voters in in the U.S. are starting to catch on to this, and a lot more of them come on to President Trump's side going into 2020, especially for all the work he's done for Jewish Americans and for the state of Israel. But I'm I'm just disgusted by what I'm seeing in the media right now. Yeah, me too. Uh, Jason Miller, once again, um, thank you so much for joining us. Give give yourself a plug once again. Where can people find you, read you, follow your social media? Absolutely. So the Twitter handle is at Jason Miller in D.C. And uh, I always have some interesting commentary that is out there. So I'd love I'll say. folks uh, tune in and pay attention. And uh, Raheem, uh, excellent work uh, filling in for, uh, for Buck today. Thanks so much once again, Jason Miller there, ladies and gentlemen. And I think the, um, the prevailing consensus really is um, that the Democrat Party is moving in a very, very... Um, well, I often say dangerous, uh, but I think it's dark and dangerous as well because some of the things that you hear coming out, I mean, like Andrew Gillum, as, as Jason Miller said uh, just a moment ago, um, heckling the president's son, who has been fantastic in calling out anti-Semitism, tech censorship, um, been touring the country, you know, really making people feel like they are once again and should be a, a governing part of the nation. That's what, in my estimation... The Trump campaign did, and that's how I think the Trump administration um, has has governed. So, you know, when you look 
at what I now call the Corbynization. Again, remember Jeremy Corbyn being the leader of the Labour Party in the UK, the Corbynization of the Democratic Party of America. I just wonder to myself, especially when you look at um, Jewish groups in this country, um, and I speak again from having seen it happen in the UK where so many people um, in, in the British Jewry um, took a step back from supporting the Labour Party and actually started to uh, routinely and rightly criticise Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party for the things that it was doing and the people that it was placing in positions of power. I think that's going to happen here in the US as well. And I just can't see why any practising Jewish person who has voted Democrat all their lives would want to walk into that polling station uh, next year and put a mark by the box of the party that is promoting people like Elon Omar. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe you know, you're out there and you're a Jewish person and you feel like I'm, I'm saying something incorrect. Why don't you tweet at me, at Raheem Kassam. It's R-A-H-E-E-M-K-A-S-S-A-M. I'm always willing to have... The political debates and discussions, that's what this country is, that's what one of these things, uh, one of the things this country is so great for, not like back home, let's say, uh, in the UK now, where political discourse is significantly throttled, uh, where the uh, the hammer of the hate speech, uh, what is it, the hate speech monitors comes crashing down routinely. This is the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Raheem Kassam. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back. This is an epidemic, and we have a president who will not, who not only will not acknowledge that we have an epidemic of white nationalist terror after New Zealand said just a few people, he's providing the mood music for it. That is the reality we face. Yeah, I think the president needs to at some point look in the mirror and understand that the rhetoric, the words he uses in all of this, inflame this big part of what's going on in America, give permission to the most craziest people in America. And it happens in part because there's a climate set at the top of unbelievable, constant lies and hostility and, and division in this country. The conspiracy theories cited by these neo-Nazis in Pittsburgh and New Zealand and now outside San Diego, conspiracy theory that Trump never condemned and actually uh, seemed to support. And we don't know if it has any connection to, um, to the politics that's going on. But I mean, it would be a stretch to, to say that it does. And remember, Donald Trump just over the last couple of days have been defending what he said in Charlottesville. And it echoed, called back into our memory. Right? Something that just happened not too long ago. What happened in Pittsburgh? Donald Trump and all of this hate right, is part of the environment of today. And he, he bears some responsibility for it. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Raheem Kassam. Broadcasting live out of West Palm Beach today, no less. Um, you heard that, right? Ladies and gentlemen, you heard the media clamoring to blame President Trump for the, for the rise in anti-Semitism that you're seeing um, across the country, for the rise in political extremism that you're seeing across the country. Well, I was raised, let me tell you something, in a Muslim family, so I, ha- I, I have no problem saying this whatsoever. When it comes to things like that, when you, especially when you look at, over at Europe, which is a harbinger for what is to come in the United States, if you are not careful and cautious and you don't turf these bums out who are, who are behind this stuff. Let me tell you something. A lot of the newfound anti-Semitism that you're seeing in Europe now is not coming from neo-Nazis and white supremacists. There is that. It does exist. But a lot of it is coming from Europe's new Muslim communities, who, the, especially those who have particularly fundamentalist outlooks, especially those who have particularly fundamentalist 
uh, uh, overviews of the, the Middle East and the Middle East peace process and the Israeli-Palestinian issue. A lot of it. And, and go away and look, for, look at it for yourselves. Don't trust me or trust me, but verify me, okay? Go and look at it. You're looking at people en masse of Jewish extraction moving out of France. People, I read a story the other day uh, in Germany. Jewish uh, uh, community leaders saying there's no future for Judaism in Germany. And they're moving out. And they're moving to safer places. Safer places like the United States. Or safer places like Israel. Because they simply don't trust that the migrant explosion that Europe has faced over the last couple of years especially, but over, over the last decade, but really since 2015, when Chancellor Angela Merkel, remember when the migrant crisis was raging, said, come one, come all, we can take everybody. They're now seeing a rise, a distinct rise in anti-Semitism. They are now seeing more and more synagogues being attacked. We're seeing more and more churches being attacked and burned, attacks on priests, attacks on Christians all across Europe at the moment. And believe you me, that is what the Democrat Party is inviting here. So when I hear those media talking heads uh, waxing lyrical about how President Trump is somehow to blame, you know, this is probably one of the most Jewish-friendly presidents this country's ever seen. His family members are Jewish. He recognized the Golan Heights as Israeli territory. And whatever you think of that from a geopolitical perspective, I happen to believe it's the right thing to do. But, but for whatever happens from a geopolitical perspective in your mind, you have to admit that that, the moving of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and don't forget, that wasn't a, an outrageous thing to, for him to be offering. That was something that every president over the last couple of decades has offered. The difference being that President Trump actually did it. And the New York Times and the Democrat establishment and their anti-Semitic foot soldiers, they cannot bear it. That's why they attack like this. That's why they hide behind CNN and MSNBC and Media Matters and all those other places. And I'll say this as well. When David Duke endorsed President Trump, against President Trump's wishes in 2016, President Trump distanced himself. He said, never heard of the guy. I don't have anything to do with him. When David Duke comes out and endorses Ilan Omar, says she's the most important member of Congress, nobody in the media wants to talk about it. Nobody in the media wants to discuss why that relationship is going on there. This is The Buck Sexton Show. My name is Raheem Kassam, the Global Editor-in-Chief of HumanEvents.com. We're going to be right back with more fantastic guests after this break. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. My name is Raheem Kassam, broadcasting out of West Palm Beach, guest hosting for Buck Sexton today. Mr. Sexton on his travels. Um, we had a great first hour with Jason Miller and uh, going into the 2020 campaign in, uh, here in the, uh, in the United States. I want to take you across to another campaign now, uh, one that's taking place in Europe We've got uh, Martin Daubney on the line, uh, I guess former journalist for the moment, turned uh, a political party candidate for the Brexit party. Martin, thank you for joining us here on the Buck Sexton Show. Absolute pleasure. Huge fan of your work, Raheem. Huge fan. Oh, well, same applies, Martin. Seriously, I mean, you've spent a long time now in, in, in the world of 
uh, journalism. You've 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 gone all around that uh, political commentary, all of that stuff. But something's dragged you in uh, to frontline politics, and and I'm I'm curious because I think we're seeing more of this on both sides of the Atlantic at the moment. Um, either ordinary people uh, or people who never had political aspirations um, who are going into this, and and you're part of this new Brexit party, which has been founded by my old buddy and my old boss, um, Nigel Farage. Tell us a little bit about what what dragged you in um, and about the Brexit party. Well, I think it's sad to say that I'm absolutely not your usual political candidate. Um, I'm a men's magazine editor, a magazine called Loaded, uh, which celebrated hedonism and men's interests. I'm a journalist of 25 years. I'm the son of a coal miner and a teacher. I'm the first boy in my family to ever make it to university. And I've been a political commentator in the UK here now for about eight years. And over that time, I've seen politics literally unravel before our eyes. Um, Much the same has happened on your side of the pond. Politics became broken. Um, Donald Trump, of course, broke politics your side and our side politics was broken by Brexit. We saw 17.4 million people, many of them, people like myself, you know, ordinary, hardworking, working-class individuals put their cross in the box, at which point we saw our political class absolutely ignore them and do everything they possibly could to derail this massive outpouring of, of democracy. Literally every tool that they've had at their disposal, they've laid down to defeat this, they've downvoted Brexit every time and three years later we are no nearer to getting Brexit through and that is why Nigel Farage kind of come back from the wilderness to start this new party just four weeks ago this party was started um, and it's got a huge diverse array of academics journalists thinkers business people non-political class people many many people in this party have never worked in politics before and we've all taken the calling and come forward because our politics is broken. Our our politicians do not want to enact democracy. They are absolutely treating us as their subjects and not acting as our servants. And I really felt that I just had to step up and be a part of this. Well, so you, you speak about this sort of nullification process of Brexit, right? You've seen the nullification process of the Donald Trump presidency, the Donald Trump election from 2016 in the form of the Mueller report and all the delegitimization of his presidency that we've seen. We've seen very similar taking place with Brexit in the United yeah. Kingdom. We've seen Theresa May going to Brussels and, and putting together just a, just a totally crap deal. Um, you've had yeah. most of Parliament, the majority of Parliament, uh, that has voted this thing down time and time again. Uh, the people voted for this, and they didn't just vote for this uh, in a majority. They voted for it, Martin, as you said, in a majority in an election, in a referendum that was the largest ever democratic exercise the United Kingdom has ever seen. Three years yeah. later, the United Kingdom still hasn't left, so that means that you are now fighting the European parliamentary elections on May the 23rd. Tell our American audience, if you will, a little bit about what the European Parliament is, what it does or what it doesn't do, and, and, and tell us w- what it means if, if you get elected, what will you be doing in that parliamentary chamber to make sure Brexit happens? OK, well, um, every member state of the EU is signed up to its framework, its legislation, um, the great 
um, dividing line of Brexit campaign was that most ordinary Brits were getting pretty fed up of having our laws made in Brussels and not not being self-governing, a lack of sovereignty. It means that every nation state signs up to common economic plans and also the main thing was open borders. So we had an immigration crisis and we didn't have the power to do anything about that. All these questions made us ask, well, who's really in control? Mm. And so the the, the binary choice of in or out the European Union happened, and 17.4 million people voted for it, a a big majority, 52-48%. And ever since then, you know, it's been a case of trying to stop it. And, of course, the EU was never going to let the UK leave with with a decent deal because we all know that other nations across the European bloc are looking to follow suit. And mm. Will it be the Italians next, you know, the Quitterly? Will it be Frexit, the French? And so we were, we were made an example of a line to that. Our own political class um, voted 75% to remain. So we can see quite straight away that the politicians themselves are voting out of step with the people and have done everything to stop it. Now, if we get in, um, is this going to be a protest vote? Are we going to go and cause mayhem? Are we going to go and try and get involved? I mean, we are unique in terms of a political exercise and as far as we'll be voting for our own obsolescence. We want to join, um, as MEPs, a political institution that we want to destroy. So in that <laughs> sense, it's, it's going to be an interesting journey. We, we are literally turkeys voting for Christmas. But this is about more than Brexit now. This is not just about getting out of the European Union. It's, it's about shining a light on the very real fact that our political system is broken. Democracy has been denied. 17.4 million people have literally been ignored by our politicians. And I think that sent a huge fault line through the very centre of British politics. Mm. And we are seeing the traditional parties being decimated at the polls. After just four weeks of us existing, we are currently polling six points ahead of Labour and a full 15 points ahead of the in-power Conservative Party. This is a political revolution and it's grassroots and it's individual donors donating £25 each. It's a new Mm. way of funding politics. It's a new way of getting involved in politics. And I think people want that change. They want this seismic revolution because they're just sick of the broken politics that we have. Uh, Martin, we've got about two minutes left. I'm going to ask you this and you don't have to slag anyone off. Uh, There's no no need to... Uh, 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 you know, I know there's some animosity between the UK Independence Party and the Brexit Party right now, but I want people to understand um, just why yep. Nigel Farage set up this new party, uh, because UKIP was an established vehicle, it used to be his party, yep. uh, and, and people will be wondering why is Raheem talking about the Brexit Party? Well, the Brexit Party is actually, I mean, you launched two weeks ago, you're already polling at the top um, in most of the sure. polls for the European parliamentary elections. That shows the appetite out there. So you just tell people a little bit about where they can find out more about the Brexit Party, what's the web URL, etc., Etc. And why the Brexit Party rather than UKIP? Well, um, there's a feeling that, that UKIP became, um, shall I say, a bit more of an extremist party. So it went further to the right. It became um, obsessed with um, Islam, with, with immigration and the things that have traditionally kind of haunted the far right. Um, and there was a feeling um, that we had to do something new. Um, now, this, this shouldn't be happening. You know, this political party shouldn't really exist because Brexit should have been done. But there's a feeling when you look at the candidates that are standing for the Brexit party, I've been in press conferences where they've been introduced and the press have got their jaws on the floor because this is a party um, that's traditionally been labelled right-wing um, that has black women, black men, gay men, 
uh, Muslim man, yeah, you name it. It's an incredibly diverse. A Marxist. Left. Hey, pardon? A Marxist. Yeah, there's a Marxist, and, and she <laughs> and Claire Fox. She got on on the platform in London and said, "I've got practically nothing in common with Nigel Farage. I myself have never voted for Nigel Farage. This is not um, the disciples of Nigel. It's an entirely fresh new political movement. Anybody can get involved by going to the Brexit Party dot org. Um, you can have a look at what we're doing, and I think this is the beginning of of something which will sweep across Europe. The, the rise of smaller, leaner, meaner." Um, fighting spirit, populist parties, uh, which aims to take apart the, the political establishment, which isn't getting the job done. They're not mm. listening to ordinary people, and they just ignore everybody, and it feels like the gravy train needs to stop. Well, ladies and gentlemen out there, if you want to follow uh, Martin and the Brexit Party, make sure you uh, head on over to Twitter. You can follow Martin at Martin, at Martin Daubney, D-A-U-B-N-E-Y. Martin, thank you so much for joining us here on the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you. Thanks for your time. And I just want to stress again, ladies and gentlemen, that the, the, the this is about the, what we've all been saying for the last couple of years. This is not left versus right anymore in a lot of our politics. This is right versus wrong. Um, and that's why you're seeing so many different people from so many different traditions, from so many different class backgrounds, from so many different uh, parts of the country and so many different business backgrounds. And like uh, uh, Martin said, you've got a Marxist in the Brexit party. You also have business people. You have right wingers. You have moderates. You have people who've never been involved in politics at all before, all coming together and telling the political establishment enough is enough. We are going to replace you. We are going to upset the apple cart. We are going to do something that has never been done in history before. And that's why, as you can probably hear from the sound of my voice, I'm very excited about it. This is The Buck Sexton Show. My name is Raheem Kassam. We're going to be right back after this break. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. My name is Raheem Kassam. I'm the editor-in-chief, global editor-in-chief. I made that my own title, by the way, just to upset the globalists out there, of humanevents.com, the website that was Reagan's favourite political magazine when it was in print during his years in the Oval Office. We're bringing it back to life this Wednesday. If you head on over to humanevents.com, you can find out more. And in fact, we've got some uh, uh, offers on there for people who join us from the outset before we actually launch. So, you know, once again... Uh, and Buck told me I can do this, by the way, humanevents.com. I'm joined now by a, a competitor of human events, by the way, a Daily Caller writer, a friend of mine, uh, Mary Margaret Olihan. Uh, Mary Margaret, thanks for joining us on the Buck Sexton Show. Thanks for having me, Raheem. I wanted to discuss with you because actually you're one of my favourite writers in the space of, of uh, conservative uh, women's issues. I wanted to discuss with you this great article in the New York Times this morning called "Where Are the Socially Conservative Women in This Fight?" and it starts with a with a story about uh, the great late Phyllis Schlafly, um, who actually I think came to Washington D.C. in the same year that Human Events was founded, um, nineteen forty four. Um, and and started fighting for conservative women and conservative women's issues. Mary Margaret, tell us a little bit about this article and why you think it's so important. Well, I found this article really interesting because, first of all, they dive into how when Phyllis Schlafly first started immersing herself in the feminist movement, she tried to stay away from this victim uh, feminist mentality that so many feminists today have adopted, and she instead went for um, a more equity feminist approach. Um, And what I find really interesting about this article is they dove into something that Elizabeth Warren actually brought up, 
which is um, the two, what does she call it? The two, ter- or two income the two, trap. The two income trap, yeah. Yeah. And so this is an idea where once upon a time, a family could be supported by one income, but now we've fallen into this two income trap where two incomes apparently isn't enough for a middle class family. And we still have these people that want to get married and a mother that wants to raise her children, but she can't because for reasons unknown, the middle class can't be supported on one income. And Elizabeth Warren actually suggested back in 2003 that this was because of the, all the women entering the workforce, and she probably would never say that now. But um, I think that that idea is actually very true. And some of the ideas posed in this article were why is it, what can we do about women in the workforce without telling them, oh, you shouldn't work and um, degrading them in that way, but also upholding the dignity of the family. And um, I thought it was really interesting. She dove into how Tucker Carlson at one point said that women weren't getting married because men weren't making as much money as they were. Um, It was a funny idea. It was very interesting, and I don't totally disagree with him. But at the same time, it seems more to me that there's a cultural phenomenon going on where men and women don't look at families the same way and they don't appreciate marriage in the same way. And Hmm. you can see this in um, uh, very, very strongly in the way we approach relationships. Um, I mean, if you just look at dating apps, instant gratification. (laughs) I try not to. your fingertips. (laughs) Exactly. I don't don't, don't need to. Uh, That's what I meant. (laughs) But the, you bring yeah. up a really interesting point there, Mary Margaret. I mean, the statistics that are borne out here and, and, and that are reported in this article today as well, they're not new statistics. They're statistics we know, but, but they're very stark, and I think we should often remind ourselves of them. In 1960, 82% of Americans between 25 and 34 were married. Even as late as 2000, 55% were. In 2013, for the first time, a majority of that age block had never married, and the downward trend shows no sign of stopping. That doesn't seem to me like it bodes particularly well uh, for local communities or for societies when you consider them writ nationally. No, it doesn't at all. It's actually very terrifying. And if you think about that downward spiral, pretty soon we're not going to be seeing much marriage at all. And um, when I think about that for my generation or my, my younger siblings' generation, well, that's pretty depressing. And um I think if you think about how that can be addressed, it's it's not so much in uh, lowering women's salaries or raising men's salaries or um, leveling that playing field. It's in recognizing that men and women are not the same, and we have never been the same. And to approach this situation as if we are the same is to approach it destructively because we're created to be biologically and like mentally compatible, and that's how we work the best. Um, wow, what a what a bigoted statement you just made there, Mary Margaret. How dare you how, how <laughs> dare you suggest that men and women are compatible? What a what a crazy thing. So look, I mean, all well and good for us to understand where the problems lie. Uh, where do the solutions come from? I think the solutions come from families themselves. I mean, it's it's a pretty generic thing to say, but families need to be teaching their children to approach marriage and family in less um, less materialistic ways and be approaching um, each other as compatible and complementary people and not as, um, you know, someone to be fought with. And, and if we're going to be looking to, for marriage, then we should not be fighting and trying to suppress men or suppress women. We should be seeking to complement each other.
Uh, Mary Margaret Olihan, um, just tell our audience where they can read more of your work, read your tweets. Uh, I, 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 I like to read you in that Evie. Is it Evie magazine as well? Yes, Evie magazine. Amazing close. Um, Evie magazine and the Daily Caller News Foundation. And uh, it's Mary Marg Olohan, O-L-O-H-A-N on Twitter. Is that right? Yes, it is. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Mary Margaret, for joining us here on the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, thanks so much for having me. And let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the end of this article in the New York Times today su- suggests an heir to Phyllis Schlafly, a socially conservative female voice who can galvanise others, could help us. She just has to step up. Well, it's the likes of uh, Mary Margaret Olihan and, 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 and her compatriots that I've met over the last couple of years in Washington, D.C. and beyond um, that are doing that very same thing. And I think it's a, a very worthwhile thing to be doing. Uh, I also want to talk, stay on this subject and talk about it with uh, our next guest in just a moment, uh, Terry Schilling of the American Principles Project, uh, to get the, maybe the male perspective on this. Um, and then, of course, if time allows, we'll have the other 70 genders represented on this show as well. But for now, this is the Buck Sexton Show. I am Raheem Kassam, the Global Editor-in-Chief of HumanEvents.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. My name's Raheem Kassam, the Global Editor-in-Chief of HumanEvents.com, which is relaunching in just two days' time. And we hope to have some very, very good analysis from my next guest, Terry Schilling is the executive director of the American Principles Project and a good friend of mine in Washington, D.C. Terry, thanks so much for joining us on the show here today. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Raheem. Glad to be here. Well, you don't sound that glad. Can you perk up a bit, please? Listen, I, I'm very excited. I, I, I don't know what analysis you're talking about, though. I thought we were going to discuss and debate whether or not you're daddy. Whether or not I'm daddy. We all know I'm daddy, Terry. Terry, for those of you that don't know, and there's no reason you should know, is making a very esoteric joke uh, about a a party that I threw at CPAC earlier this year, um, which was really the human events. uh, It wasn't the launch party, but it was the announcement that we had purchased human events um, from Sailing Communications. And and we were racking our heads thinking of what they they allowed us, the venue that we had. They allowed us to name a cocktail, whatever we wanted to name it. And my friend Haley said to me, well, why don't we just call it Daddy? And I said, well, why are we calling it Daddy? Why don't we just call it Raheem is Daddy? That way you'll have all these girls going to the bar and having to say, what was it again, Terry? Raheem is Daddy. And I ordered four <laughs> of those, by the way. You did. You did. You had a lot of Raheems in your mouth that night. I'll tell you that much. Terry, <laughs> so much for a wholesome show. That's gone out the window. Um, I trust you to bring the tone down. Terry, we were talking about something relatively wholesome as well. We were talking about this article in the New York Times. Where are the socially conservative women in this fight? And now I, I guess I recognize where they are. They don't want to be anywhere near us. Not, not, I mean, I have a totally great socially conservative woman that I'm, I've been married to for almost 10 years now, Raheem. I mean, speak for yourself. Yeah, what's her name again? Your wife? Uh, Katie. <laughs> Katie, that's right. <laughs> Terry and I just like to uh, bust each other's you-know-whats. Uh, how, how is Katie, by the way? Send, send all of our love from all of the audience to Katie, Terry. I will, definitely. I will. But you know what? Katie was actually the one that sent me this article. That's what, uh, I was going to say York. that. I should have had Katie on, not you. She actually is much smarter than I am. You would have been better off. Next time we'll do that. She can't be that smart if she married you. <laughs> Boom. Boom. If there was a way to drop these mics in this studio, I would have dropped it right now. But unfortunately, they're suspended <laughs> above me. Terry, let's get to the topic at hand. Okay. This article, your wife sent it to you. You read it. What did you think? 
Listen, I, it, it, can't, it, it touches on the main crisis facing the family today. It used to be family breakdown, people getting divorced and then remarried and leaving kids without a father in the home. But now the crisis that America faces is failure of family for, families to even form. Uh, you're seeing kids uh, graduate college uh, with tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt, and then they either go into the workforce if they can find a job, where they you, even if they do find a job, they can't make enough money to even pay their bills. Um, but a lot of them actually take a punt and go to grad school to make even more money. They find out after that they can't make that much more money. Um, mm. And then they end up having to put off marriage. And so, you know, she points out in there in 1960, 82% of people between 25 and 34 were married. Well, by 2013, that had fallen to less than 50%. Um, and so the question is, is the family important uh, to uh, a society and to uh, a country and a nation? Um, and if it is, how do we fix this? How do we get uh, more families to form and get back to creating the next generation and raising the next citizens. Um, and, and I think that this article is a great way to jumpstart that conversation. What are we taking away from this? Because as I mentioned in the last segment when we had uh, Mary Margaret on, uh, there's some very stark statistics that, that even surprised me when they were put this bluntly um, about the uptake in terms of marriage um, in the United States. Um, I mean, we can take away depression from this article. We can take away a feeling of hopelessness. Um, but you and the American Principles Project that, that, that you run um, and, and a bunch of other groups out there are actually trying to do some things to change that. I know you've also been looking at what some European countries uh, are doing in this regard. And I've had many conversations um, with, with very senior people in the Hungarian government, for instance, about how they are trying uh, not just to... Um, encourage people to get married, but also to have uh, large families, there's also an immigration element to this, is there not? Whereby, you know, the, 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 the logic that, that is being dictated to us says, well, we must import hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people every year because we're not having enough kids. Well, how about we just have enough kids? No, that, that's exactly right, Raheem. And there are some good proposals out there right now in the United States, but there's even better ones, I think, um, in countries like Poland and also Hungary, as you mentioned. Uh, one of the proposals that I like here in the United States, let me just back up real quick. So the, the, the big thing that, that, that one of the statistics that Helen Andrews dropped is that women are happier at home. Uh, in a recent survey, only 17% of mothers with children three or younger said that they preferred to work full-time. That means that mm. 83% of, of women that have children either want to work part-time or not work at all. That's a big deal. Um, mm. And so what we need to focus on is, is, is making it less scary to have children, right? Like, it, it's a big deal. I mean, look at yourself. I mean, you're, you're the same age as me. You're 32, and there's no little Raheem's on the way, which I find actually but, very but, depressing. But, I wish there but, were 100 or more. Hold on a second. You don't know that. I don't even know that. They could be out there. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's part of the problem. <laughs> no, no, that, that's, that's a fair enough point. It's well taken. Um, but so what we need to do is we need to make it easier for people to get married. We need to make it have, make more sense. But right now, uh, women can't find men that make more money to them, let alone uh, men that you know can keep a stable job. Um, now, the author says that it's because lots of women are going into the workforce and taking jobs that men should be getting. But, you know, mm. I'm not going to go down that road. Um, but 
what we need to do is make it easier and make it less scary to have kids. And one of the ways we can do that is through paid family leave. Now, there's a proposal on the table uh, right now from Senator Lee and Senator Ernst um, that lets parents draw from their Social Security um, in order to take time off after they have a baby. Now, it might not seem like that big of a deal, but, you know, when you do get married and you're talking things over with your with your spouse, bills are very tight. You know, it's hard to make ends meet. And so having to take eight to 12 weeks off to spend time with your baby is a big decision. And it mm. keeps a lot of people from having kids. Um, so by letting people draw from their Social Security and, um, uh, you know, take some time off, spend that really important time with their kids, it makes it easier to have kids. And then guess what? And they figure out, we don't need two jobs. Actually, we can just cut a little bit here and not go out to dinner as much, and we'll still be just as happy, and we'll have a, a new little mini regime around the house. Well, what a what a pleasant thought. Uh, <laughs> I think I think the existing regime is a handful enough, don't you? No, we we need more of you, to, especially to shake things up. We need to, you know, we need to make sure we get this Brexit deal done, and we need a ten more of you. Well, I'm trying. I try to do every. I can't do everything, you know. I can't relaunch human events and get Brexit done, and you know everybody exactly. wants me to do everything. Take some responsibility exactly. for yourselves, for goodness sake. Exactly, Terry. What's your what's what's your? I hope this is going to be your first article for us on human events. Yes, uh, I'm actually very excited about that. We're we're writing away, um, and I think we're going to have some pretty interesting ideas. You know, Hungary and uh, and I believe it's also Poland. Um, one of the very interesting things that they do is that they venerate moms. They venerate women. Mm. Uh, you know, in this country, we kind of look down on, on moms that stay home with their kids and don't have a job, which is really terrible, right? Because if you look at what moms do that stay at home with their kids, they're not serving some corporate master or some, you know, billionaire and helping that billionaire make more billions of dollars. Mm. They're at home. They're raising their kids, and they're they're making the next generation of Americans. It's the most selfless and most humbling job in the entire world in this country would be screwed without these stay-at-home moms. But um, what Hungary and Poland do is they recognize the importance of these moms. And if you have, I believe it's, uh, if you have four kids or more, you get to draw from Social Security even if you never paid into it. So you basically get a pension at the end of, you know, your time, um, um, you know, of, of working and being in that, but you can draw from Social Security because the, the logic is simple. You had you raised four kids who are all now paying into the Social Security fund, um, and you're more than taken care of here. And it's to incentivize more kids and to make it easier to stay at home with your kids. I think it's a really great great idea, and I I hope to write more about that. Well, I think not only is it a great idea, Terry, but the statistics are showing that the the Hungarian government's policies are really working. I mean, they've gone from from one point one, I think, children per family, and they're up to sort of one point six now over the last couple of years. Uh, and the trajectory is going up and up. So for the for the people who say no, doesn't work, no point trying it, don't sponsor families with with you know government uh, uh, inducements or anything like that, uh, you you can tell them to bugger off because it works, right? It absolutely works. The problem, though, with when it comes to population growth or population decline is that there's a lot of momentum that goes into those numbers. So, you know, after um, after the baby boom ended and uh, birth control was kind of starting to become mainstream in America, it mm. took several decades for the uh, the birth rate to fall 
to normal levels. And, and, and if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Because, it, you know, when you're raised uh, in a large family, you're probably going to have a large family yourself. You might not have as many kids, but you're going to have, you know, if you come from a family of five, you'll probably have three or four. And then right. that next generation. So it takes actually a few decades of, of momentum uh, to slow down or speed up. And so the idea that Hungary is seeing these results so quickly is very is a very big sign of hope. Um, that these types of programs can uh, help turn things around. Now, Terry, um, thank you for your time. And in exchange for your time, I would like to uh, offer you a chance to plug your work and your organization's work. Where can people find out more about you guys? Oh, very easy. It's AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. And basically what we do is we are a pro-family organization that works in politics. So think NRA, but for the family. So we don't focus on guns. We focus on the family. We unelect the bad guys, and we elect the good guys. It's very cool stuff. And we help candidates win, actually. We found that a pro-family agenda uh, across the board is what Americans need um, and what they like to vote for. And it's actually, I think, conservatives' answer to all these big government socialist programs that the left is promoting. Yeah, if you want to, want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, support and get involved with a um, with an organization that aids uh, family and family matters in in the United States. That's that's APP for you. it's AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. Terry Schilling, the executive director. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Buck Sexton Show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Raheem. We'll talk soon. All righty. Uh, I think phenomenal uh, article, ladies and gentlemen, once again in the New York Times of all places, uh, but written by Helen Andrews, the uh, managing editor of the Washington Examiner magazine. Um, if you want to check it out, it's called Where Are the Socially Conservative Women in This Fight? My name is Raheem Kassam. This is the Buck Sexton Show. We're going to be right back. And there is a specific problem, as you rightly identify, for women of color who are three to four times more likely to uh, die in childbirth. And here's the thing. Even after we do the adjustments for income, for education, this is true across the board. This is true for well-educated African-American women, for wealthy African-American women. And the best studies that I've seen put it down to just one thing, prejudice. That, that doctors and nurses don't hear African-American women's medical issues the same way that they hear the same things from white women. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Raheem Kassam, the editor-in-chief of humanevents.com. That was Elizabeth Warren, one of the Democrat Party candidates for president in 2020. You know, we've been talking about the uh, issues regarding um, women in the United States, families in the United States, and a whole lot more. Over the course of this hour, we had uh, Mary Margaret Olihan from EV Magazine and The Daily Caller, Terry Schilling from the American Principles Project. And I wanted to play that clip for you there by Elizabeth Warren to sort of highlight how far she's tacking now to the left. You know, when she wrote The Two-Income Trap in 2004... Um, it actually dealt with uh, why middle-class mothers and fathers in general are going broke, why the family um, was was effectively being uh, economized out of the situation um, or out of uh, what people thought was the ideal, uh, the return to uh, having at least one 
parent who could, if they wanted to, uh, stay at home. Now Elizabeth Warren, when she talks about women's issues, as you heard there, is basically only ever talking about it from the perspective of oppression, only ever talking about it from the perspective of, of minority and minority status and identity politics. You know, Elizabeth Warren, people sometimes don't know this, um, at least I didn't know it until relatively recently, uh, was actually registered as a Republican from 1991 um, to 1996. She voted Republican uh, for a great many years. And you can see it in the two-parent trap, uh, the, sorry, the two-income trap, where she talks about that. Um, and now not so much. And again, it takes me back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, the extremism that you now find within the Democrat Party. They're all trying to leap over one another, to leapfrog each other, to run to the left of one another. You've got Joe Biden on stage in Pittsburgh going, I'm a union man. You've got Elizabeth Warren talking about minorities being uh, 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 oppressed by doctors and nurses now as well. Seems like an attack on, on, on people who save people's lives um and you've got beto and pete Buttigieg. i don't even know how to pronounce that anymore i've heard so many different pronunciations of it and they're all running lefter and lefter and lefter and i gotta tell you it portends very poorly not just for the democrat party of america but it portends very poorly for the american national conversation if you don't mind me saying so Um, that these are the conversations that we're having to have now instead of the conversations like the ones that I just had with Terry Schilling and Mary Margaret Olihan. And actually, you know, I started the show by talking about what a disservice the New York Times did with its anti-Semitic cartoon. You've got to give credit where it's due, though. The New York Times did a great service in publishing this article today um, on uh, socially conservative women uh, and where where and why and how and when we're going to get a new likes of Phyllis Schlafly um, in in our midst. And so I think it was very important to talk about those things. In the next, uh, in the next hour, don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking to some very, very interesting individuals. We're going to talk to Jack Posobiec of uh, One American News, uh, one of my favorite uh, reporters. And Will Chamberlain, my business partner at humanevents.com, we're going to walk you through why we're doing what we're doing with that platform. In the meantime, don't go anywhere. This is The Buck Sexton Show. I'm Raheem Kassam. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. My name is Raheem Kassam, guest hosting for Buck Sexton today. I am the newly minted, as Buck once called me, uh, editor-in-chief, global editor-in-chief, as, a, as, a, as, a, as my little jab at the globalists. Um, of humanevents.com. I'm glad to be joined now by uh, one of my favorite reporters in the world. Uh, He is a host at One America News, Jack Posobiec. Thanks for joining us, Jack. Raheem, thanks for coming and having me on. And also congratulations on the new title, Global Editor, and uh, congratulations (laughs) on the launch of Human Events. Thank you. I really appreciate it. We're just like, we're two days away now from launching and, 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 you know, the buttocks are clenching more and more by the minute as I, uh, as I fear that, uh, what sort of traffic we're going to throw to this site that we've built and if it's going to stand up to it, and, and we'll see. So very excited about that. Thank you for mentioning it. Nothing Jack, good you've been... you with at least a factor of five. Yeah. You have been tweeting uh, uh, furiously, even more furiously than usual, um, Jack. Jack is probably one of the highest energy individuals I know 
He's the he's the diametric opposite of 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 Jeb Bush. Uh, Jack, you've been tweeting a lot, and and for a lot of people, it's quite hard to follow because there's just so much information coming out uh, at the moment, and and you've been getting really down into the nitty gritty uh, regarding Bob Mueller, um, the FISA process. Uh, Rod Rosenstein, Bill Barr, that whole thing. And you've actually reported some really interesting information that I haven't seen anywhere else yet about the FBI, the White House, and the Secret Service. I'm actually just going to throw the microphone over to you and let you talk through what you've found in recent days. Um, And then, if you wouldn't mind, just commenting on why we're not seeing this kind of reporting anywhere else, Jack. Yes, of course. Well, what we're first seeing now, and this was sort of uh, mentioned in a letter by Senator Grassley, and Senator Johnson that was practically overlooked media were new text messages sent by the intrepid pair of lovers, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, who ran the Trump investigation, the counterintelligence investigation into uh, President Trump, which morphed basically into the Mueller investigation. So this is, and let me take you back a little bit to 2016. So we're looking at November 2016, the week immediately following the surprise upset of Donald Trump defeating Hillary Clinton. That's November 8th that takes place. Then November 17th, and we've just seen now new text messages that have been released between these two FBI agents. And what they say in these specific messages, and we've seen instances where their exchanges have been released in drips and drabs over the past Mm. couple of years, in the past few months specifically. But these are possibly some of the most shocking ones that we've seen thus far. And the mainstream media, as usual, is not giving it the coverage that it really deserves. I guess they're too interested in watching the Game of Thrones season ending. Um, Boring. Right, right. What it says here at one point is, if Katie's husband is there... See if he can see if there are people we can develop for potential relationships. And then they go on to talk about a briefing, a security briefing, that they plan to make with the incoming vice president, Mike Pence. Well, the information that's come out on this is, so who's Katie's husband? What does this have to do with Mike Pence? What does this have to do with the FBI? Mm. Well, the way it shakes out is this. Katie refers to an FBI analyst working for Peter Strzok named uh, Katie Seaman. Katie Seaman's husband, right? So Katie's husband is actually a reference to the man who would become Mike Pence's uh, Josh Pitcock. And so here we have an instance now where the two agents that were investigating Trump are discussing working with Mike Pence's uh, incoming chief of staff about potentially developing sources for their investigations. What they're talking about is using this uh, familial connection through the analysts uh, being married to Pence's chief of staff to develop sources at this point within the Trump transition team and then possibly moving forward even within the White House itself. They're spying on the White House? Essentially spying on the White House. Now that seems like the type of story that should be leading the news channels. Um, Any ideas why it isn't? Well, I think because the news channels have come down so hard on this story, Uh, A.G. Barr said in a conference not too long ago at at U.S. Congress that uh, he, in his opinion, that the presidential campaign of Donald Trump was spied on. However, uh, they really pushed back on that 
labeling of the event saying, oh, it was merely court-ordered surveillance. You can't use the word spying, to which Barr said, you know, why are you equivocating at this point? Spying surveillance, it's, you know, you know, six one way, half a dozen the other. It's the same thing. And it's become so politically charged now that they don't want to make it look as though Trump may have been right all along when he uh, we, we found out that he was right about the wiretaps. We knew, now know that there was a FISA investigation into uh, Donald Trump's campaign. Now we're hearing that the FBI may have even been recruiting sources or had essentially a back channel into Mike Pence's office within the White House itself, which would make sense because these are the same FBI agents who would later go to Mike Pence when they were targeting General Flynn. Uh, so it really does seem to make sense that there was some kind of relationship that the FBI was able to exploit in order to get into the White House, especially in those early days of the administration. There's a couple of other avenues to explore here and other questions that are raised on the back of this. I mean, obviously, we know that um, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein handed his resignation in um, to be effective on the uh, 11th of May. I think that went in earlier today. Uh, Jack, which seems to be tied to a lot of this. Um, but there's also questions to be asked as to whether or not the... Uh, uh, let's talk Ben Rhodes for a second, right? Ben Rhodes, for people that don't know Ben Rhodes, you're very, very lucky people. Um, ben Rhodes is one of the most indigenous characters in, in Washington politics. The uh, I think he's on some podcast now, but he was he was one of the... Uh, leading figures in the Obama administration. He was the deputy national security advisor. Um, he has been very, very close to uh, Susan Rice and, and the president himself. Um, really, one of those people, Jack, that you might say was 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 behind um, a lot of their a lot of their foreign policy. Uh, ben Rhodes, you were dissecting an interview uh, conversation that was had with him about whether or not the Obama administration knew and whether Obama himself knew uh, about the, uh, the, what, what, what President Trump called the tapping of Trump Tower um, all those years back when, and the whole media laughed at him and he said, what are you talking about tapping, tapping at Trump Tower? And now it transpires, of course, that they were uh, spying on him. What do you think Ben's Ro- of Ben Rhodes' testimony in this regard? Did he give a particularly compelling case uh, for Obama not knowing about this? You know, Ben Rhodes, in that interview he just gave, I can't believe he actually sat down for that thing. I mean, it looked like he may have been drinking. There was a half, uh, half-empty half wine glass on the, the table next to him, or half full, if that's your, your, your shake on it. But he's slurring his speech. He can't keep his uh, story straight. And he immediately jumps to that christened classic Obama administration line of, well, I'm only just finding this out at the same time you are as a private mm. citizen from the U.S. You know, news media. It's actually been so long since I've heard that line be used. I almost forgot that every single time that a scandal erupted within the Obama administration, that was their go-to, right? So he's just he, – he kind of jumps back to the script, his pre-recorded statements. But I had a lawyer reach out to me at one point and said, boy – I would love to be up against this guy in a deposition because you can destroy him. First of all, he's, he's, he's nervous as heck. Then number two is he says they had no idea about it. There's just one problem. Ben Rhodes was the deputy to who? Susan Rice. Mm-hmm. We already know that Susan Rice wrote an email to herself on the last day of the Obama administration expressly stating that she and Joe Biden and Barack Obama received 
a briefing on the mm. Trump investigation and very specifically about the Steele dossier itself and its allegations from James Comey and Sally Yates, who at the time were leading the DOJ and the FBI. So we already have the information that the person that you're the deputy to knew all about this. So you probably knew all about it too, Ben Rhodes. And it's fantastic to see that now, and just stepping back for a second, there is so much fact-checking that's going on by conservative media. Conservative media is breaking news. Human events is going to be breaking news and doing so much amazing things. That well, hold on. Hold on. Don't, don't, don't put the pressure on me. <laughs> what I mean to say is that this, they were in office for eight years and never had to deal with any type of pushback or any type of adversarial combat or adversarial behavior from the media whatever they would say to the media. And Ben Rhodes has been public about the fact that he would mm. outwardly uh, lie to the media, specifically about the Iran deal, and they would repeat whatever he said. Was it Ben Rhodes? Did you just say this? Was it Ben Rhodes who, who once talked about how stupid journalists were? That's exactly what I'm referring to. He, he yeah. would say, we would come up with things in national security briefings, yeah. and then I would go and tell them to... Uh, you know, I would go because most reporters are typically. I'm quoting him at this point, or yeah. know, paraphrasing at least. But most mid twenties, they only have a little bit of campaign mm. experience. They don't really understand how Washington works, so you can tell them whatever they want, and they'll repeat it. Extraordinary stuff, Jack. Uh, just just uh, in the last sort of uh, thirty to forty five seconds that we've got here, where do you see this going? How do you see this transpiring? Are we about to see major declassifications, and is the Trump administration going to start moving? Um, on all of these deep state, in-your-face state, whatever you want to call them, figures um, who appear to have been, and I'll say it, uh, behind what looks like a, a, a an un, un, unabashed coup attempt. Everything that we've heard from the White House and the Oval Office specifically in recent days, the president knows full well the amount of political capital that he has right now being completely exonerated on the question of uh, collusion and then also on the secondary question of obstruction. And so he is lying in wait and planning on how to really take a two-pronged effect to, number one, go after the people who planned this coup, and that's his own words, and then number two, also use this as a springboard to relaunch his uh, campaign essentially for 2020, his re-election campaign. So he's trying to find a way to thread the needle to do both of those at the same time, given the time frame that we're in. And I think that honestly, being on the offense is where Trump is always at his best. I also think it right. is his natural comfort zone. And so being on offense in the face of all this, guys, you have to realize the more you go against him, the stronger you make him. I think that's absolutely right. Jack, just uh, give a give a plug for yourself. Where can people read you, find you, watch you? Yeah, the best place uh, is OANN.com, and we're also available on Cloud TV. Please catch One American News. If you don't have it, contact your cable provider. You can get us. We're on uh, with Fios. We're on DirecTV. We're on Roku as well. And Jack, at Jack Posobiec, that's P-O-S-O-B-I-E-C on Twitter. Is that correct? Fantastic. Yes, sir. Yeah, make make sure you're following Jack. He's uh, he's in a he's in a fight to the death now, in a race to the death rather against uh, his good pal Mike Cernovich to see who can get more followers on Twitter. So let's let's see Jack over the line. We're hashtag Team Jack over here. Thanks once again to Jack Posobic. This is Welcome the back Buck to Sexton, Sexton, Sexton Show. show. I'm Raheem Kassam. We're going to be right broadcasting back from this West break. Palm Beach today. I'm joined now by the president of the Claremont Institute, a fine conservative think tank. Ryan Williams joins us on the line. Ryan, thanks so much for, for, for being here today. 
Uh, always my pleasure, Raheem. Thanks for having me. Ryan, you uh, and uh, the Claremont Institute and the American Mind are undertaking a new series, and I understand that there's going to be a presentation about this in Washington, D.C. this week as well. Defend America, Defeat Multiculturalism is the name of this fantastic article on the theamericanmind.org. Um, would you tell us a little bit about it, Ryan? Sure. Um, yeah, we, you know, we've always been in the uh, education business, the first principles education business, but we thought the... Uh, the tenor of uh, of the times and the, especially the tenor of the modern left merited a little more of a proactive and political approach. So we're we're launching a campaign of sorts between now and the 2020 presidential election. Uh, and the, the theme really is captured in my essay, Defend America, Defeat Multiculturalism. Uh, and by multiculturalism, you know, this term was in vogue in the 90s and in uh, all the complaints about the ridiculousness of uh, the various studies department on campuses, but our argument really is that it's um, it's now spread to the rest of America. It's really the animating uh, energy or the animating uh, purpose of the modern left, uh, especially the leading edge of the modern Democratic Party. Uh, and if they're allowed to um, to uh, instantiate it across the land, it's going to be bad for Americans. Uh, it's you know it's the politics of multiculturalism are identity politics and their enforcement arm. Is political correctness. So, what what does that mean, really? Well, the the old tradition of the founding, the founders of America, is the belief in individual rights. The the new notion, the new multiculturalist notion, is that uh, there are only group rights, and that really democracy or republicanism is all about figuring out amongst these groups who's been the most oppressed, uh, given the history of the West, and then allocating resources, um, prestige, honor political position uh, according to that rubric of oppression. Uh, mm-hmm. We think this is no no way, no real way to run a country uh, rather than leading to, um, you know, the the uplift of those oppressed groups and, and genuine diversity. It will just lead to the division of Americans into balkanized groups and, and God forbid, uh, continuing descent into uh, cold and eventually even hot civil war. So we thought uh, we really need to argue against this um, engage the right in this argument and try to build a coalition around uh, the defeat of this pernicious influence in the body politics. So that's that's what we're up to with the project. And it really is a fantastic essay. I've shared it with, with my Facebook page, with, with the Human Events Facebook page, on my Twitter feed, everywhere I could possibly share it. Um, I, I love how you summarize things. I'm going to read a little passage here and just, just ask you to elaborate a little bit and, and maybe how we can defeat it as well, rather than just identifying the problem. You say, in short, multiculturalism is a worldview, a regime in the classical sense, a political and cultural way of life wrapped up in one. As an ideology, it stands for nearly the opposite of America's national motto. It seeks to divide and conquer Americans, making many groups out of one citizenry. The modern left, accustomed to running the campuses according to the new social diktats of multiculturalism, now wants to run the world that way. Um, Okay, so we know this. Um, I think a lot of the audience will be very familiar with this, and I think uh, a lot of Americans... Are, are necessarily uh, against the idea of, of, of multiculturalism. But how do you actually wrest control back from the left in this regard? <laughs> well, it's no small task. I mean, you've been toiling in these vineyards for years. Uh, well, I mean, one place to start is to start at the source. Uh, this won't happen overnight, but we have to go after higher education. Uh, libertarians and even a certain species of conservative has been, have been uh, uh, a little queasy about wielding the power of the federal government to... Uh, help bring the colleges into line. But look, we give away lots and lots of money 
to almost every college in the country and especially the elite ones. I don't see why we shouldn't start insisting that they stop uh, basically engaging in what amounts to uh, to seminary work of anti-Americanism on campus. And we can start to um, change the nature of the debate and free some thought up on the campuses. That would be a place to start uh, doing it, of course, in line with, with uh, constitutional uh, dictates, of course. But, um, but you know, we give away $100 billion in change a year in subsidies, wow. uh, to say nothing of the subsidization of, of loans. So I would start with the campuses, uh, and then I would, you know, make the argument publicly and build a political coalition around it and really start running on it. I think Ryan, we, we, politics, yeah. Oh, we're very pushed for time, yeah, but uh, <laughs> but we're going to, yep, sorry about that, but we're going to feature it on humanevents.com later on in the week as well. Ryan Williams of the Claremont Institute, thank you so much for joining us here on the Buck Sexton Show. Great, thanks. Cheers. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Raheem Kassam, the global editor-in-chief of humanevents.com. I'm joined uh, for the next two segments by the publisher of humanevents.com, my business partner, uh, Will, and, and friend, Will Chamberlain, joins us uh, on the line now. Will, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your fantastic live periscopes uh, to join us on the show. I appreciate that, Raheem, and I do I do appreciate the friend qualifier. I think that's particularly <laughs> important. So I see. I, I didn't say in which here. order it was either, in no particular order. Um, indeed, indeed. Will, will um, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein resigned earlier today uh, you have been across this issue in in quite an impressive way in uh, in recent months. Um, you were on the One American News Network OAN uh, just last week, I think, talking about the curious uh, way in which Attorney General Bill Barr thwarted uh, the advances of Bob Mueller and Andrew Weissman um, in the uh, in the in the Mueller probe. And uh, there's a fantastic piece of analysis that will be going on humanevents.com when we launch on Wednesday. If people want to read that, we'll, we'll pick it apart and explain it all uh, to you guys because there are really a lot of intricate uh, moving parts that can quite easily be missed unless you've read the entirety of the Mueller report or unless, you know, you are studying this thing day in and day out. And that's what Will has been doing. So, Will, talk to us a little bit about the resignation of Rosenstein, what you think it means um, and, and where this goes next. Because because we had Jack Posobiec earlier on in the show and, and he was talking about um, spying in the White House and the FBI and Lisa Strzok, uh, 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 Strzok and uh, what's Lisa Page and Strzok and all of that kind of stuff. It's so detailed and there's so much going on behind the scenes that people don't see and that, that the news networks, even the right-wing news networks, are not really covering or getting to grips with. So why don't you give us a little bit of information on, on what you're seeing behind the scenes there? So I think... Rod Rosenstein made made it clear he wanted to resign a few months ago, but when mm. Bill Barr came on, he that this story has been in the news a lot, that Bill Barr asked Rosenstein to stay on to help him with the FISA investigation and how the FISA warrant was issued against Carter Page. So I think the fact that Rosenstein is now resigning demonstrates that Barr has what he needs from Rosenstein, uh, because when Rosenstein's back out in the world as a private citizen, it's not as simple a process to interview him. You know, people have mm. talked about how there's an inspector general investigation going on into the FISA case and other things. The investor, investor, uh, inspector general rather cannot subpoena individuals who are not in the department. They can only ask for interviews of people who are still employed. So my basic thesis is the, the real significance of why the, the Rosenstein resignation today is that 
Barr has no more need for him to be there to help him understand what happened over the past couple of years. And what does this mean for Barr then? I mean, is he is he really isolated now in that position, or, or does this give him an opportunity to consolidate the AG's office around where he now wants to go? Right. I mean, I think Barr's been in firm control of the AG's office almost from the moment he stepped into shoes, stepped into the position. I mean, just think about it. Six weeks after he was confirmed, the Mueller investigation was over, and it was pretty clear that the Department of Justice was suddenly under his firm control as opposed to under Sessions when it seemed like it was almost an autonomous agency completely independent from the Trump administration and sometimes hostile to it. So I think I think Barr's been in control. But what Rosenstein's resignation means is that Barr will now get to appoint his deputy. So that will help him further consolidate control over the department because he'll be able to confidently delegate certain functions to a hand-picked deputy, knowing that that deputy will not thwart his intentions. Well, and what do you what do you make um, of the uh, of the sort of situation as Jack Posobiec explains it? Um, in that uh, there there appears to have been um, a move by the FBI to even recruit some people from within uh, the the White House or the Vice President's team um, to help to help spy effectively. Right. I, I mean that that news itself is shocking. Um, I don't think I mean Rosenstein personally had involvement with that. It seems like I mean he was made deputy AG early on in the Trump administration, mm. but doesn't strike me as like the person responsible for the spying itself. That mm. that seems like it was Peter Strzok and, and Lisa Page and you know slight and maybe Andrew McCabe too, but not all the way up to Rosenstein. That why said, do you think it is? Seems, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, well, I was that said, Rosenstein wasn't really that inclined to investigate that stuff. It seemed as though Rosenstein was perfectly happy to let the Mueller investigation continue without any sort of supervision, but very reluctant to do anything to deal with the various scandals that arose out of this pretty clear FBI spying. So where do you think the Trump administration goes from here? Where does the White House go from here? Because quite clearly, whether it's been hyper-intentional or semi-intentional, I think you can say, you can't say it was unintentional. You had to get the warrants, you had to do the spying, you had to reach out to those people that, that, that Jack was talking us through earlier. Um, where do you think they go, knowing that really, they haven't been able to fully trust a lot of the administrative state that they have inherited and that have been around them. Um, they now have the ability uh, that you have AG Barr in there, that you have a little bit more semblance of control um, over that whole process, uh, over the departments. Um, but can they trust the people around them now? And what will they be doing from a political perspective, do you think, over the next couple of months? Declassification of, of, of the warrants and, and, and all the documentation surrounding them? Um, or is this the time to draw the line under it because we're heading into an election cycle? Um, I mean, I don't think... I don't think they're going to have like discussions about what is the best political move for the tr for Trump's campaign. I don't think that's the kind of conversation Bill Barr would be amenable to. While I think Bill Barr is in Trump's corner, he, I, I think he's still enough of a lawyer and a law and an institutionalist about DOJ that he he would, you know, kind of recoil at any in, you know insinuation that he was going to bring a prosecution for political reasons or start declassifying things for political reasons. But, but isn't this exa isn't that exactly what Eric Holder used to do? Didn't Eric Holder uh, describe himself as Obama's wingman? Right. I mean, that's certainly true. Uh, and it's I mean, when people say and criticize Barr 
for being a Trump lackey, it's, it's really obvious that these same people had nothing to say when Eric Holder was, you know, Obama's wingman. They had nothing to say when Loretta Lynch had, was on the tarmac with Bill Clinton while she was nominally investigating uh, her, his wife. Mm. Like, all, there's, you know, there's all sorts of shenanigans that have already gone on at DOJ. And, you know, I mean, at the same time, so, so I mean, and now the Democrats, the shoe's on the other foot. The Democrats control the House and they want to exercise, you know, supervision over Barr. But they set a lot of precedents that will be easy for Barr to exploit. Well, I, I think as the time goes on, and especially overnight, people are going to get to be getting to grips with this Rosenstein issue. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hear more about it, much more about it tomorrow and no doubt in the in the weeks and months to come as well. Uh, when these people have left their positions in the Trump administration, for some reason, they, they don't go quietly into the night. Um, I'm sure there's a no, book deal in no, there somewhere uh, for for Rod Rosenstein as well. I want to pivot uh, in, in the last uh, uh, segment that we have here on the show today uh, to do a shameless segment plugging uh, what you and I have been working on for the last couple of months and what launches in just two days' time. That's humanevents.com. It was... Uh, Reagan's favorite magazine when when he was president, he credited it with with his conversion from liberalism to conservatism. It's the oldest conservative magazine in the country, 75 years old, um, and it's been sort of sitting on the shelf, not doing an awful lot over the last six years or so. And you and I identified that it was both a a great shame uh, that that was happening to that brand uh, and be a great opportunity for something very beautiful to come to the conservative media sphere in the form of an online magazine and hopefully, you know, one day print um, where we can actually showcase the best of the right. But hold hold over the break, Will, and we'll get to talking about that in just a moment. This is the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Raheem Kassam. We're going to be right back. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Raheem Kassam, Global Editor-in-Chief of HumanEvents.com, joined by my colleague Will Chamberlain, the publisher of HumanEvents.com. Um, we're going to talk to you guys now a little bit about what we're doing with that very, very well-established prestige conservative media brand and hoping that you'll come on over and support our work. Uh, Will, take, take it away. Take the mm-hmm. pitch away. So, yeah, we've, we've purchased human events. We, we locked that down in late February, right before CPAC. And uh, we're going to launch on Wednesday. I'm extremely excited. I mean, the, the amount of content that you managed to get together and the quality of the contributors that are contributing to the launch day is really pretty awesome. Um, so I'm really excited about the content. In terms of the vision for what we're doing, there, there is missing on our side a prestige magazine, that uh, a di- prestige digital magazine that can really elevate the discussion for the sort of nationalist conservative movement. And I think that human events is an opportunity to really create that out of whole cloth, right? I mean, we have some media outlets that are generally inclined towards our side, but many of the traditional conservative media outlets are more inclined towards establishment, uh, you know, 1990s conservatism than they are to Trump and the movement he created. You're talking about what what is derogatively described as boomer conservatism nowadays, I think. Um, yeah, rather than yeah. the sort of the, the muscular nationalistic uh, conservatism that, that, that President Trump stands for and that we had uh, Ryan Williams from the Claremont Institute talking about uh, earlier on in the show. You know, when I, when I talk about it with people, Will, I always say, look, the left has Rolling Stone, it has Vanity Fair, it has The Atlantic, all these big, beautiful prestige brands um, that give a lot of legitimacy um, to the left's arguments. They they use nice, big, pretty pictures. 
The fonts are all very nice. The arguments are very well made. Um, they pump this stuff out, and and you know, to a in a great extent, the younger people uh, who are consuming uh, political media and cultural media, uh, they looked to that as a as a reason by which to read something. If this doesn't look good, uh, they don't actually want to have much to do with it. And and you know, you have your uh, on the right your 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 news sites like Breitbart and Drudge and all these guys. But actually, and and this isn't. I'm not being derogatory about them at all. But they don't provide something that I think new, the new audience in in this area is looking for. So I always say the reason we're doing this is because we've left a massive, massive uh, uh, chink in our armor here in not providing a, a very high quality, glossy product for people. And not just that. It's not just about the look. It's also about coherent philosophy um, that that doesn't seek to uh assume that people are either stupid or uneducated and not willing to educate themselves but that also isn't too highfalutin you know it's not a journal it's not it's not academia uh but it but it sort of merges the two i, I suppose i call it and you've heard me call it tabloid intellectualism right right and i, I mean i feel like that's partially not to you know to our own horns i guess but that's sort of our style of politics and our style of commentary is that you know there's no reason to think that you should be talking to a tiny audience of intellectuals or that only a tiny audience of intellectuals cares about content quality and cares about aesthetics. Um, most people do care about those things. And I, I think most people will read things that are both of a high intellectual quality in terms of making good arguments and of a high visual quality in terms of being aesthetically pleasing and good looking. And, and I think that that's our, that's the key opportunity here. If you really do create something on our side, that is accessible but smart and beautiful as well. Then you've got you've got something pretty cool that could could really drive the conversation and, and change the narrative for our entire movement. So we announced a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, we have a. It's very difficult for conservative media sites to make money in advertising. You know, you get boycotted, and advertisers come under a lot of pressure from the political left um, to not advertise with conservative uh, uh, news sites or magazines. Um, so we actually set up a, a membership structure by which to run uh, this uh, this this website, and and we we are from this point on, or at least from like a week ago, until a, until a month after launch. So so Wednesday is our launch day, and then until a month after that. We've got this scheme called the Founding Fathers uh, scheme where founding members of Human Events, you can go online right now to humanevents.com. You can sign up. Uh, there's a button there that says click here to sign up as a founding father for $17.76 a month, which is very small in the grand scheme of what it takes to run uh, an entity like this. I mean, the Condé Nasts and the Vanity Fairs and all those guys, remember, they're running on budgets of tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions every year. We're asking people to put their hands in their pockets for $17.76 a month they come on board and they get exclusive access to our private Discord chat channel where you can talk to me and Will in real time. And, and I'm actually going to start putting out um, endorsements by people. We've already got 250 people in the Discord group from people who are finding that really very cool to be in a chat with us and learn in real time what's going on in D.C., what's going on um, in their politics, what's, what's about to happen all of that stuff, they get, a, they get a free signed copy of my next book, they get exclusive content, they get exclusive emails and offers and all that kind of stuff um, that you would expect and a whole lot more. We're going to be holding uh, you know, parties and meetups and gala dinners and all this, these nice things that you would expect for an investment uh, uh, like that. Because I know while 
it sounds like a small amount of money for some people. It's also a lot of money for some people. But we think it's value. We think it's a value proposition. We're always complaining on our side that we're not doing enough. Um, we're not out there enough. We don't have enough media brands. And the fact of the matter is, Will, if people like you and I don't do it and don't stick our heads above the parapets and build this stuff, it's just not going to happen, right? Exactly. And I, and I think the key part of why to choose a membership structure instead of a subscription or a paywall, um, right, is that when you think about what you're trying to support when you're supporting a political magazine, you're supporting that magazine because you want its ideas to flourish. I mean, unless you're reading it to hate read it and you just feel like you need to read the content. (laughs) But in general, the the way I think about it is if I'm actually giving money to a conservative magazine, it's because I want I like the ideas in that magazine and I want those ideas. I want to read those ideas myself, but I also want others to read them and be persuaded by them. Mm. And if that's true, then a paywall or a subscription is sort of contrary to that concept. Instead of you know letting your content be free and go viral, you're putting a paywall behind it, making demanding that people pay to see it. Mm. And then what, what ends up happening is, is the, the content itself doesn't go viral. So you know, that's a, that's a, a very message, good way of putting go it. No, it's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. And, and so by, by doing it this way, where you are a member, you can interact with us in a chat, and the exclusive content is, content is more personal and, and sort of like adds a, it's a taste of kind of behind-the-scenes type material rather yeah. than being the kind of material that a political magazine is trying to use to push a Absolutely. conversation. Well, you we've can, got... We've, We've, yeah. we've got we've got 20 seconds left, so I've got to wrap up here. But thank you so much for joining sure. us. That's Will Chamberlain, the publisher of humanevents.com. Come over, be a founding father, be a member of that site. I want to thank our producers and our engineers. I want to thank everybody across the, uh, across the network who's helped us do this broadcast today. It's been absolutely fantastic, fantastic guests. My name's Raheem Kassam. Uh, Buck Sexton, uh, back with you shortly. I, I hope you have a, a, a very good day.